audio where the tones are always dulcet and the content is especially nerdy i am carson sestouli this is fangraphs audio uh my guest today is our full-time employee and editor dave cameron and what follows uh, dave and i discuss among other things the magical evening that was september 28th and the day of baseball of course much of that was difficult to put into words uh, because we're paid to try to do so we attempt to Mr. Cameron and I also look at the playoff series to come, preview the teams and pitching staffs and each team's respective chances of winning the title and the belt. Uh, and before we get to that particular segment, uh, we also spend a few minutes with the losers, in particular the biggest of losers, the Boston Red Sox and Atlanta Braves. Uh, we ask the question, what went wrong? The answer to which just might be the worst luck imaginable. One person who does not have the worst luck imaginable is the listener, because with absolutely zero ado, we now go to my conversation with Dave Cameron on Fangraphs Audio. It's Fangraphs Audio. On uh, on with me right now is Dave Cameron, full-time employee of Fangraphs, joining us from his uh, home in the American South, and we're going to talk about everything, I guess. <laughs> I mean, everything that happened uh, Wednesday night in baseball and, and what we have to look forward to. Dave, you're there, is that right? Yeah, when you said everything, I was looking forward to talking about existentialism and, uh, you know, uh, Jersey Shore. But apparently we're going to focus on baseball? Well, I have a feeling that at some level, at least existentialism, existentialism is related to last night. Uh, and this is, of course, Thursday when we're talking about this. Jersey Shore, uh, we could probably fit it in. Um, <laughs> but, so, okay, baseball happened last night. Uh, uh, the, te- the two teams that had sort of clawed their way back into playoff contention, um, the St. Louis Cardinals and uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, are the teams that won last night, one in less dramatic fashion, the other in maybe the most dramatic fashion, literally, like, actually imaginably possible. I mean, you, you could maybe sit down and come up with a more a more dramatic way of it happening. But I guess the question is, uh, you're what, uh, almost 30? Have you seen anything like that, like what happened, and do you think anything – like in the future is possible uh, to yeah. sort of top that. You know, I mean, I lived through the 1995 Seattle Mariners comeback, which I think uh, by games back in mid-August is the biggest comeback ever. They were 13 and a half games out with six weeks to go and uh, came back and beat the Angels. And, you know, I mean, I remember like Doug Strange hitting big home runs and Vince Coleman hitting a grand slam on his birthday. I mean, Vince Coleman of all people. And so I saw some pretty improbable things during that six-week run, but I don't remember any single event being as just unbelievably crazy as what we saw last night. I mean, the Rays were 0.3% chance to win in their final game in order to save their season. And then, they, you know, they put together this rally, and then, they, you know, even in the ninth inning, it was Casey Kochman up trying to save their season, and you felt like they just don't have enough good hitters. And they pinch hit Dan Johnson, and ESPN shows that he has a 335 OPS on the season. And you're just like, this is, this is it. The Rays with their $40 million payroll, they have to re- rely on Dan Johnson to save their season. And then he does it. And you just, you lose all sense of reality. Yeah. Now, how do you think this occurs? You brought up the sort of, uh, you know, your comparison with the Mariners, which is your team allegiance. Mine, at least, at points in my life, has been with the Red Sox, um, certainly through 04. And 04 was 
kind of the most ridiculous year. Uh, as, a, as an outsider for you, looking at the Rays uh, circa this year and then the Red Sox achievement in 04, obviously the Red Sox did it slightly later on in the playoffs uh, you know, versus the Yankees. Uh, the World Series really wasn't uh, that suspenseful. But, I mean, as, as an outsider for you, for looking at both of those, how, how do those differ in terms of the, the uh, wow factor, I guess? I mean, the Rays Red Sox, or the Red Sox Yankees in 2004 was certainly one of those epic, you know, no one's ever come back from down 3-0 and Rivera's superhuman and, you know, the stolen base and all that. But to me, that was like kind of a, com- not a compacted event. So like you have Dave Robert Steele and the blown save, but there was never any one point where you just had like 15 minutes of your life where everything in baseball was going insane. And last night in baseball, we had in a 20 minute span, uh, you know, the Braves lose, the Red Sox lose, the Rays win. I mean, this was all just like so close, uh, compacted, just intense. Like this is baseball puree, essentially. If you just took the essence of the sport and then just put it into a really brief time period, it was almost impossible to keep up with unless you had, you know, 14 TVs and nine eyes. Right. Uh, well, I want to talk about that in a second. Um, it, you talk about like the essence of baseball. I think it would be we would be hard pressed not to mention uh, Jackie's post, Jackie Moore's post uh, from the on the site today, which looks at AL uh, wildcard playoff probabilities, basically in real time, starting with about 7 p.m. and going through going to just after midnight. Um, that and that sort of kind of gives the scoop. There's also a pretty amazing uh, video, well edited video at MLB.com today. That kind of takes you through each of the kind of weaves you through each of the games, um, and exactly what was going on in real time. Uh, but that that brings up the question: Is how does one watch this? How did you how did you end up? Because it's almost too much happening at once. And so I was wondering, like, how did you keep up with it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I have one TV, and so uh, after my wife went to bed, I uh, was mostly focusing on the Braves and um, Phillies game. And, you know, the Yankees uh, were down set, uh, up 7 nothing at that point, and so that was a game I kind of ignored. Um, and, you know, the Red Sox game wasn't on on any of the channels that I carried, so I actually couldn't see the Red Sox-Orioles game. I was just having to, you know, either go on MLB TV for updates or whatever. So um, basically just flipping back and forth between those games, the Cardinals-Astros game obviously was of no interest to anyone after about the first inning. So just kind of keeping an eye on those two games, mainly focusing on the Braves and Phillies game, and basically thinking that the Yankee game was going to end and, you know, maybe the Red Sox would be in or we'd have a one-game playoff. Um, and then Twitter exploded. And so I realized quickly that maybe the Rays weren't completely dead and that game should draw some of my interest. But still, I mean, even, you know, down a run in the ninth inning, I'm not thinking the Rays are going to win this game. I mean, you know, you can talk all you want about, you know, the Yankees not using Rivera, but these were not the worst pitchers in baseball on the mound. And these were some of the worst hitters in baseball for the Rays. And so, you know, I was more focused on the Braves-Phillies game, but trying to kind of balance my time between the two was was quite difficult. And, you know, I think uh, at one point I had to go take some uh, anti-cancer medicine, came back, and the Red Sox had lost. And I was like, all right, well, <laughs> this is clearly just, you know, I need more TVs. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is straight. I mean, literally... Uh, the the Red Sox and the Rays were down to a strike, uh, final yeah. strike, right? With the Red Sox chance to win, and then improbably, uh, I don't know, Chris Davis, comma hero question mark? <laughs> That's bizarre, right? Uh, injured Chris Davis. Chris Davis, who strikes out 40% of the time against normal people, facing Jonathan Tappelbon. Chris Davis, not healthy, 
and he, he lines a double. I mean, you know, this is just one of those things that you just shake your head at and be like, what were the odds of a two-strike hit from one of the most uh, strikeout-prone hitters in baseball against a premium dominant closer? Uh, you know, and then Nolan Reimold's okay, but Robert Nandino is a utility infielder. I mean, these were not like uh, the 27 Yankees that Papelbon was going up to, uh, going up against. And they, he hit, had, they, 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 they hit the ball pretty hard. They they certainly did, and you know I think uh, even Andino had a nice line drive, but I thought Crawford was going to catch that ball when I saw the replay, and uh, you know I think it's one of those things where when they say baseball is a game of inches, you can really look at you know the Red Sox were one strike away if Chris Davis, you know takes a slightly different swing and he he swings through it like he does most of the time when he's at the plate, you know that rally never happens, and if Andino's ball hangs in the air a little bit longer. I mean, there's just so many things where you'd say the Red Sox were that close to hanging on, and it didn't happen. Yeah, well, it's, so I was in, I spent the last uh, week in New England uh, visiting family, and of, of course, I mean, literally to uh, to a, I mean, to a man and slash woman, everyone I talked to, you know, within my family, who are, they're Red Sox fans without necessarily being baseball fans, they were all hysterical in the way that I expect Red Sox fans to be, or at least pre-04 Red Sox fans to be. Uh, but but um, the, I guess the interesting thing was, A, that they were sure that the Red Sox were going to blow it, and, and B, w- one of the things that happened along the way was it was one of the games the Red Sox blew in which uh, Papelbon gave up the game, and his, uh, his comments after the game were that if he has two strikes on a batter, he needs to put him away. I forget exactly who it was in that situation. But that was the exact situation that um, certainly that, that Papelbon had on a right-handed batting Nolan Reimold. I believe it was 0-2, maybe it was 2-2. and Can you help me out? Uh, I think it was 2-2, two and two, yeah. 2-2. Two and two. But how does, how, does Papelbon, how does Papelbon give that up on 2-2? Two and two? He has a nasty split finger. He's got a 98-mile-per-hour fastball, and yet he serves it up on the inner half of the plate. Yeah, I think we saw a lot of that last night. I mean, you know, Johnny Venters uh, hit Ryan Howard on a one-two pitch. Ryan Howard can't hit lefties, and, and Johnny Venters is one of the best left-handed pitchers in baseball, and he hit him with a pitch with two strikes. And it's just like, well, uh, I guess if you were going to take one thing away from last night's game, it's that maybe, uh, you know, relief pitchers, even the great ones, aren't to be trusted. Yeah, it was yeah, it was certainly strange. And then, of course, Evan Longoria playing the role of, I mean, and, and actually, I want to get to your post in a second that I think will help to, to inform this conversation. But if anyone ever has a chance to to sort of uh, distinguish themselves as a superstar, Evan Longoria took advantage of that last night. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Longoria has been a superstar in the sabermetric community for a while because of his defense and his contract. So, you know, I mean, he's the, the darling of uh, asset value and uh, marginal value over you know, salary, but I think, you know, across baseball, Adam Longoria seems a good but not great player because he's not got a guy who's going to hit 280 and 40 bombs, and he doesn't look like Prince Fielder or Albert Pools, uh, but I think Evan Longoria's got a really good chance to put himself on the map. If he didn't do it last night, he's got a chance to do it in the playoffs, and I think people are going to realize that Evan Longoria really is one of the very very few best players in baseball. Now, one of the things you talked about, <clears throat> um, you did a post, uh, excuse me, just eating some hummus, uh, <laughs> With bread, uh, you you wrote a post uh, for the site today called Outcomes and Desire, in which I think um, you were trying to just sort of dispel the notion that the winners are the ones who tried hard, and the losers are the ones who weren't able to will themselves to victory. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe maybe develop that a little bit. We have a tête-à-tête about that. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we've heard and read columns like this for years, but, uh, you know, in the euphoria of Longoria rounding the bases last night, uh, an unnamed announcer on an unnamed network started talking about how the Rays clearly had demonstrated that they wanted this and the Red Sox didn't know how to grab the, the wild card. And it just struck me as just so ludicrous that we're going to really start uh, making character judgments about the quality of the men on the field based on just the tiniest. Uh, I mean, this was a 13-inning, X-inning game that could have absolutely gone either way. You know, in the top of the 13th inning, the Rays had uh, given up runners at first and third with nobody out looking like a, a pretty good situation for the Yankees to take the lead. And then Greg Golson screws up running the bases, gets caught off third base, and they wiggle out of a jam. Does that mean the uh, Rays charactered their way into the Yankees having a rookie on third base to make a bad base running mistake? Or were they fortunate that the Yankees' third, uh, runner on third base screwed up and they were the beneficiary of, you know, good luck, honestly? And so I just, I am annoyed by the fact that we're going to take the result of something that was could have gone either way. This is really a 50-50 coin flip. Regardless of which way the game turned, I just don't think we should be evaluating the character of these men who have put months and months and months of work in to try to succeed. And you know guys like Dustin Pedroia and Jonathan Papelbon and Jacoby Ellsbury, and these, these guys want to win. They're super passionate, uh, intense individuals. When they've won a World Series before, it's apparently proved their heart and metal. But now that you know their pitching staff falls apart, uh, they lost that heart and metal. I just, I think we should just avoid character judgments in general when we don't know these people, and especially to try and uh, evaluate the character or intestinal fortitude of a guy based on the fact that Greg Golson made a base running mistake and Dan Johnson hit a home run off Corey Wade. I mean, this is just, you know, this is not something we should be doing. I should, I should note, um, you did use the word character as a verb, which I think is, uh, if you're making reference to unnamed announcers from unnamed networks. Uh, using the word character is probably as a verb is probably the best thing. They outcharactered uh, uh, the Red Sox. Um, here's a question though. So, if if last night was maybe you know not not necessarily a function of character, there is still the fact that the Red Sox gave and the Braves for, for that matter gave up uh, po- you know September leads uh, you know of eight and a half games or greater. Uh, in, in, is that is that at some level is that a is that a function of randomness or do you think that do you think that other things could be a play or do you think that other things could be a play but we shouldn't spend too much time dwelling on them because we don't necessarily have all the information we would need to make those conclusions yeah i would say that there are probably a lot of variables that played into the both teams choking away pretty significantly and by choking i'm not trying to say that they did it through lack of heart and just saying, you know, they lost really big leads in a short amount of time. I think in both cases you can, without making excuses, look at legitimate injury concerns. I mean, uh, you know, the Red Sox didn't have Clay Buckholtz for most of the year and their pitching staff was uh, massively patchworked down the stretch. Kevin Euclid barely played. Uh, they, you know, they were hitting Ryan LaVarnway fifth in the culminating games of their season. I'm pretty sure that's not how they drew it up. And, you know, the Braves were uh, without Jair Jurgens and Tommy Hansen, two of their better starting pitchers. Uh, both of these teams had legitimate injury problems that caused them to play less well down the stretch than they had during the season when they were healthy. That's understandable. I mean, if you're less than 100%, you're not going to play as well as you did early. So I think that, you know, that's a factor. I think there is some randomness to it. Um, and, you know, there could be mental aspects of pressure that, you know, uh, sports psychologists would have to get into. But I just think that, uh, by and large, baseball writers and baseball fans are not qualified to make those kind of judgments. And 
for the most part, we should probably just focus on the talent on the field and rather than trying to extrapolate from the performance about the player's heart and metal, we should just say, Jonathan Papelbon blew a save and leave it at that. Yeah, so, but obviously th- there's some desire to create a narrative, right? I mean, yeah. and that, that's what it's come from. If you're a Red Sox fan, you want to know what happened. And you and you don't, or if you're a Braves fan, you don't want to know what happened, and you don't want it to just be, uh, you know, you know, injuries, uh, you know, talent, and you know, uh, ra- you know, randomness. You know, that's not that's not that's that's a story that many people are not very satisfied with, and uh, certainly the Boston media uh, is able to jump all over the fact that people are hungry for narrative, and make up all sorts of narratives, right? So yeah. I'm wondering, like, as responsible journalists, or I don't know. If, necessarily call us journals, but whatever it is we do, baseball nerds at least, how do we sort of fill in the the gap? You know, we, we know that we want the narratives, but we know that a lot of the, the, the ready-made, ready-made narratives, the things that, to which we'll turn, are, aren't particularly responsible intellectually. So how do we fill those in? You know, I think our narrative should be about what we can know and be responsible with what we can't know. So I think we can't know what a person is made up of and how they respond under pressure and what those guys were feeling and how that affected their performance. That's just out of the scope of what any of us can know, whether it's a sabermetrician or a sports writer or someone in the clubhouse or someone with access. Or I mean, you know, I just don't think anyone can know that kind of thing. So maybe on the things that we don't know, let's avoid speculating and let's avoid making conclusions and um, avoid character assassinations, frankly, about people who are, you know, real-life human beings who could completely disagree with us and have a a completely different perspective when we're saying something about our assumptions of what they were feeling or how they responded. And I think, you know, maybe say uh, the game itself is enough. So especially in last night, I don't know that we need any kind of narrative about the quality of the people playing the game when the game itself was so amazing. And if we had baseball on display, the pure essence of the greatness of the sport, I don't, I don't know that it needs decoration. You know, I don't know that it needs uh, a story to be told about the personalities of the people playing it. We can just talk about what happened in the white lines. And for me, it, what happened between the white lines last night was amazing, and that's good enough. Right, 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 right. Now, you, you posted something uh, uh, on our sort of uh, um, on our message board, you know, our Fangraphs message board, where we communicate with each other, the writers. You said uh, something to the effect of, you know, we have the we have the best jobs imaginable. And if you can't find a topic to write about for tomorrow, uh, you might be in the wrong business. To which I'll respond, I personally did have a hard time thinking of something to say. And I think it has largely to do with the fact that and, – and, and this could be – you know, and I think you and I probably have different approaches to how we write about the sport and how we think about it. And I, and I think that there's definitely room for both. For me personally, I didn't have anything to say that I thought could equal the, like, the things that actually happened in reality. Whereas usually, you know, like on a daily basis, you know, you have a slate of games, you approach them as a baseball fan, but you, you know, you need, you know, as as a as a reader, you want certain things kind of uh, heightened a little bit. You want to, you want your attention brought to to certain events that may be occurring that you're not aware of because it's the grind of the daily season. Because it's a grind, it's a grind for fans too at some level. It's a grind for writers. But yesterday, really. Uh, called attention to itself you, you know you didn't really need to uh, shape the the narrative you know the right. narrative i mean it played out it played out as ludicrously as possible in fact if you read uh, you know if you read a, a book that had a playoff situation unfolding as last night's did or if there were a movie in which it did you'd be like well okay that's nice but it's also not realistic 
Right. Uh, so I'm curious as to, I wonder if you feel any of that, any of that inability to add to it, or alternatively, I'm guessing maybe you don't because you, you know, you sort of suggested, well, if you don't have anything to write about, then what are you doing? What are you doing here? <laughs> well, I wrote that specifically for you, Carson. Thank you. I was thinking yeah, that you know you were going to be the one sitting there struggling to come up with a topic, and I really wanted to make you feel bad about your career. <laughs> um, but I think you know, like watching those games last night, there were so many different things that I felt like I didn't necessarily need to add to or expand upon or give any insight to, but could just be celebrated for the greatness that it was. And for me, really, it was one of the best nights of baseball watching I've ever had in my entire life. And so, uh, you know, I think the Braves game uh, gets lost a little bit in the, show, in the American League hysteria, but the, the Braves season came to an end on a ball that went about 105 feet. And, you know, Hunter Pence hit maybe the least manly hit of his career, and it ended the Braves season. And, you know, I think we can talk about, you know, uh, there's a lot of people who don't like Gips theory and, you know, batting average on balls in play as a metric, you know, and they think that pitchers have control over where the ball goes. And then you see something like that where uh, Pence just gets totally sawed off and the ball gets popped up. And because Dan Uggla was shifted very heavily towards second base, he gives an infield single that scores the run that ends the Braves season. And, you know, I think there's a really interesting story there to be written about and expanded about and, you know, maybe – uh, tying into the point of like the Braves didn't choke. They just had some really unfortunate things happen to them, like Hunter Pence's single. And that was kind of a microcosm of, you know, baseball is not in control or the players are not in control of the outcome of every single play. And sometimes there really is just stuff that you just throw your hands in the air and be like, really, we're going to lose on that. And so I think that's a play that went under the radar that didn't get talked about. And there were so many of those last night where I don't think you necessarily need to um, add to it or expand on it. You can just say, this happened, and this is why this sport is crazy, and this is why uh, we say some of the things we do, and this is why this game's amazing, and this is why we love it. I think you can celebrate what happened, and there's so much that happened that you, I could probably spend days and days just writing about individual events that happened in the two-hour period last. Right. As an aside, Hunter Pence, does he have the, the weirdest relationship between how good he looks as a baseball player and how good he actually is as a baseball player? He has the most bizarre swing and throwing motion that relative to his talents that I've seen. Yeah, you know, I think Hunter Pence is one of those guys who's just really odd in the sense that he's tall and lanky and athletic and looks like he should be awesome. And then he has really weird mechanics and looks like he should be terrible. And when you add the athleticism and the uh, weird mechanics together, you get a really good player. Yeah. And I think, you know, like the other weird thing about Pence is he was a good player for the Astros. And then he got traded to the Phillies and he became Barry Bonds. I mean, like, really, I mean, I had no explanation for how good Hunter Pence has been since we've gotten to the Phillies, other than, like, small sample size or whatever. But Hunter Pence, I mean, there's not too many things he has not excelled at since he got to Philadelphia. He doubled his walk rate. He's still looking for power. He made a great throw to throw out Dan Aguil last night. Yeah, that was he, really, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that, that throw definitely is, I mean, you talk about some of the things that can, that can get lost. Um, in a night of crazy baseball, that that throw was certainly one of them. That was it was pretty amazing. Yeah, I just think you know, like as uh, a guy who was maybe a good but flawed player in Houston to go to Philadelphia and become a star, while he's also viewed as kind of a star based on his physical abilities, but had always maybe been a little less than what perceived overall. It's just interesting how maybe he was a little bit of an underachiever until he got traded to Philadelphia, and now he's as good as everyone thought he was originally. Well, I, I can't blame anyone for underperforming in Houston because I assume that any player who has aspirations of, uh, you know, being on a winning ball club would would be, uh, you know, perpetually depressed 
uh, playing for that organization. Yeah, I, and I will say it's uh, funny to me how few people are getting on the Astros for just rolling over in the series against the Cardinals. Not that they're a good team, but they got steamrolled. Brett Myers was down 3 nothing before he got an out last night, and the Cardinals just walked all over them. And so everyone's, you know, maybe jumping on the Yankees a little bit for not using Rivera and not using David Robertson and not really putting up a contest. Uh, you know, I, I would say that the Astros didn't exactly give the Cardinals a fight either. Yeah, well, when you say everybody, you might mean uh, Red Sox fans who were loud. Whereas, <laughs> well, you know, I, I think they're so loud that they feel like everybody. <laughs> uh, that's yes, that's a fact. I can guarantee you, uh, they they are loud people. Uh, okay, so the future now. Let's move on to the future, um, because it's um, it's on the doorstep here. We have four playoff series, and they begin Friday. Uh, do, is there one? Uh, you know, I want to discuss all four in brief, and I, I'm probably going to uh, hold your hand to the fire. Um, first, I'm going to make a fire, and then I'm going to hold <laughs> your feet and your hands. It's not, it's not really a nice thing to do to someone who has, who has leukemia or getting over leukemia, but it's, it's going to happen. Uh, to to make some predictions, or at least you know, uh, put your weight on on the side of one team or another. Is there a series that's particularly interesting to you at this point? Yeah, I think the one that I'm really most going to be interested in is probably Tampa Bay, Texas. Uh, you know, I think to me these are both really interesting teams. Uh, I like a lot of players on both of those teams. Uh, I think Texas is probably going to win it fairly easily and that Tampa Bay, you know, had to extremely extend themselves just to get into the playoffs. And, you know, they're starting Jeff Neiman in game one and they're only going to get one start out of David Price. Um, so I think that Texas is in a significantly better position to win this thing. I think Texas is a better team anyway. Uh, but to me, that series is going to be a lot of fun and, and pretty interesting. Um, and so I think, you know, all four series will hold some value to me, but I would imagine when Tampa Bay and Texas are playing, that's the one I'll be watching. Yeah, now, you know, one thing that, that uh, I don't think it's gone completely under the radar, certainly, but that I don't think can be overemphasized is Mike Napoli. Yeah. Uh, I, you know... And you, we've had this discussion, I believe, on the pod before. I'm sure you've written about it. Um, obviously, Napoli came out of a situation in, uh, you know, with one of Texas's uh, division rivals, the Los Angeles Angels. Uh, you know, Na- Napoli was, you know, not particularly beloved there by Mike Sosha, um, who probably tolerated him for his offense, but didn't particularly care for Napoli because of his defense. And you've said before, I know this, that it's hard. It's hard for us to know exactly. What a catcher's worth. What what his, um, you know, we have some raw defensive numbers for catchers, including cost stealing or pass balls, or maybe even how they handle bunts, etc. But we don't necessarily know how how much, you know, the degree to which they handle a pitching staff, you know, quote unquote, because it's kind of vague, nebulous. How much that means in terms of runs. That was Sosha's uh, hesitation with Napoli all along. Napoli's certainly grown into the, you know. A larger catcher role with with um, the Rangers, but his offense is so amazing. Like, at what point does it become the fact that you just have to play him? Well, so I think if Mike Napoli would have ever hit like this in Anaheim, Mike Sosha would have thrown up his hands and said, "I, I don't care, you can catch." Right. But Mike Napoli never did this in Anaheim. I think Sam Miller put out on uh, Twitter last night that by OPS, this is the third best season in catcher of any uh, catcher in baseball history. You know, I mean, that's, uh, this was not something that I think where, uh, Sosha had, you know, one of the five best hitters in baseball and he wouldn't play him because of defense. I think he had a bad defensive catcher with some power who hit for a low average and struck out a lot. 
and had a skill set that Sosha doesn't particularly value at the plate that wasn't an amazing player. And for whatever reason, uh, Napoli has gone on to become one of the best hitting players in baseball this year. I don't think he'll ever do it again. This is probably a career year for Napoli. And, you know, Napoli is obviously one of the huge reasons the Rangers were able to win the division. But I also think that we should maybe absolve Sosha of some blame. I know, uh, I have said before, and I continue to believe that we're not really there in evaluating catcher defense. And, you know, Mike Fast had that uh, article at Baseball Perspectives last week about catcher framing that was fascinating. And I think there's really interesting work to be done. But I think one of the things that came out of that is, you know, Mike Fast showed that Ryan Dumit is an absolutely horrible defensive catcher, which is what the Pirates have been saying for years. Right. And so I think that these teams who watch these guys every day probably know more about the ability of a catcher to impact the uh, runs allowed to his pitching staff than we do. And so if Mike Sosha, who knows a lot about catching, is going to look at Mike Napoli and say, that guy can't catch for me, I, you know, I'll take that with some salt. And, you know, I, I do think that looking at the guys that he's willing to run out there behind the plate, most likely Mike Sosha overvalues catcher defense. But I, I also don't know that giving up Mike Napoli was the worst thing in the world. The really horrible thing about that trade was they got Vernon Wells, not that they gave up Mike Napoli. Okay, with regard to the Rangers pitching staff, it surprised me that that they that they didn't make a move, or, and especially that their emphasis seemed to be on uh, the outfield uh, around the trade deadline. They were they were linked to Carlos Beltran. I, I'll suggest I I'm suspicious about the Rangers. You know, maybe uh, maybe after C.J. Wilson, um, but after that they have a combination of pitchers who have decent seasons. But between Derek Holland, Matt Harrison, and Alexia Gondo, and then I guess you could throw Colby Lewis at the end of that list, they're fine pitchers, but it, it was shocking to me that that was really their emphasis, whereas the Rays have like two legit aces in, in Shields and Price. So I guess it, actually I, I'll say that's why I'm curious maybe, well, I get Neiman, obviously, is not, a, not an ace, but do you, do you really think that the, that the, the Rangers have a, the pitching staff? You know, to, to certainly you know to get them past the Rays and then you know get them further than that. Yeah, I'll uh, do a little bit of a spoiler because our staff predictions are going to go up on the site tomorrow. But I have Texas playing at all, uh, which might not mean anything because originally I had Boston over Atlanta in the World Series before the season started. So you can take my predictions for what they're worth. But uh, I, I say that I think the Texas pitching staff is is better than you're giving it credit for. So C.J. Wilson, I think, is one of the ten best starting pitchers in the American League and a legitimate number one guy to throw on opening day. Um, you know, he's not that much worse than the David Price, so if the matchup was Wilson versus Price, I would say it's a push. And then after that, I mean, so Derek Holland, I think, is a, a stuff guy who's been an underachiever his whole career and then had a really good second half. And so when you have a stuff guy who's starting to pitch really well, um, you know, I think there's reasons to believe that Derek Holland is more more what he's showed recently than what he's, his struggles in the last year and a half has been. Um, and, you know, his peripherals have always suggested that uh, some of his struggles have been related to batting average and balls in play and things that aren't super predictive. So I do think Derek Holland's a quality pitcher. Um, Colby Lewis, most of his down year this year is related to a home run to fly ball rate rise. His strikeout rate's still good. His walk rate's still good. Um, you know, Matt Harrison, I think, is maybe one of the more underrated pitchers in baseball. I think people look at Harrison as a guy, you know, he was 88 to 92 a couple of years ago. He's up to 95 now. <laughs> Harrison is a legitimate ground ball strike throwing lefty. Uh, he's not gonna, you know, blow out away seven or eight guys per nine innings, but, you know, he does two of the three things that pitchers need to do to succeed. 
And, uh, you know, now Agondo is going to go to the bullpen and give them another arm down there with Mike Adams and Koji Uehara and Nestali Feliz and Darren Oliver. I mean, that's a really good bullpen. So they don't need to ask these guys to go seven or eight innings. They can ask Holland and Lewis to go five or six, get your 100 pitches in, nibble on the corners if you need to, and then all of a sudden we'll turn it over to a really deep bullpen. Okay. Diamondbacks uh, Brewers. Diamondbacks Brewers. Uh, that starts on... Uh it starts on Saturday. Zach Renke, on a per-inning basis, has been the best pitcher in the majors this year. Um, and actually, he's not even starting. He's not starting game one. Um, the Diamondbacks, maybe, you know, they have Daniel Hudson and then, I guess, Ian Kennedy. Yep. Uh, fantastic um, team play, though. Uh, a lot of speed and athleticism that's used well. Uh, pretty excellent defensive team. Resurgent, uh, or maybe just surgent, Aaron Hill. <laughs> uh, you know, a pretty, a pretty good team. Beyond that, uh, let's not under, you know overlook the uh, contributions of Willie Bloomquist, of course. Of course. Uh, the Brewers are a team with pretty excellent starting pitching, pretty excellent offense, and defensive players. <laughs> I don't know if they're good ones. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you're reading of that series. Yeah, I think the Brewers are going to win this one pretty easily. I think the Diamondbacks are a really nice story. I mean, I don't know how many people realize this, but they won 29 more games this year than last year while cutting their payroll by $20 million. I mean, the Rays are getting all this attention for getting them the $41 million payroll. The Diamondbacks have a $56 million payroll and won five more games. So, uh, you know, I think the Diamondbacks had a really nice season, but my guess is the Brewers are going to steamroll them. I think uh, Gallardo, Markham, and Granke, um, you know, those three are really strong. The Brewers' back end of the rotation has been a weakness, but that's eliminated in a short playoff series. Um, you know, and I just think, uh, I look at the offenses, and I don't think they're particularly close. I think the Brewers are significantly better offensive teams than the Diamondbacks are. The Diamondbacks have gotten some performances that I would say are maybe unsustainable. I mean, I like Ryan Roberts. He's a decent little player, but he's probably not as good as he was this year. Gerardo Parra is another guy who's probably been over his head. Um, you know, Chris Young is a guy you can pitch to, and so he's had a decent season, but I don't think he's a guy who you can count on for offensive production in the playoffs. So unless Justin Upton just goes absolutely crazy and carries them, I think Milwaukee wins this one in three or four. Yeah, a couple of things. Um, it should be noted the back end of the uh, the Brewers' um, bullpen is also pretty amazing, and we know that that's, a, that's kind of an important thing as you, as you go through, especially uh, the short series where you can really leverage um, your your pitching staff to accommodate that, but between John Axford, who's legitimately turned in one of the best seasons of any relief pitcher, uh, and then Takashi Saito and and K Rod back there, that's that's pretty outstanding. Yeah, I think the uh, so one thing to worry about with the Brewers, they might not be able to match up as well. So it's not uh, they don't have like the really good left-handed relievers, but they have enough uh, righties who are good at getting lefties out that they can just hand the ball to a guy and say, get, go get me an inning. Um, but I do think, you know, there might be situations where, especially as they advance to play the Phillies, uh, if they advance and play the Phillies, they might want a left-hander to come in and get Ryan Howard, and they might look around and be like, ah, we don't really have one. You just mentioned the Phillies. If you, if you had to have a pitcher start for you on any given game, would you take Halliday or Granke at this point? Halliday. And, and you know, I know Granke by uh, XFIP had a slightly better season, but I, to me, I think uh, you can look at Roy Halliday's length of dominance, and, you know, he ran a 210 fifth this year, and I would say Roy Halladay is the best pitcher in baseball, and it's not even really very close. Okay, well, he's facing, uh, he and his Phillies are facing the Cardinals and a starter TBD. That game starts uh, starts on Saturday as well. 
do you give the Cardinals much chance in this? Yeah, so what I want, from what I've heard, the game one starter is going to be Kyle Loesch, uh, which almost means that the Cardinals are just giving up game one and saying, you know what, uh, Chris Carpenter just went to get us into the playoffs. Jamie Garcia, we want him to go on regular rest. We're facing Roy Halladay. Let's just punt game one and see if we can win three of the next four. Uh, I think that, you know, maybe that's not the worst strategy in the world, but I don't know the Cardinals can take three out of four from that Phillies pitching staff. And I think the Phillies are maybe not as good as everyone else thinks they are, but they're better than the St. Louis Cardinals, and they're certainly better than the St. Louis Cardinals when they have to throw Kyle Lotion game one. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Phillies swept in both National League series ended very quickly. Is Alan Craig going to be playing left field for the Cardinals? Uh, I would assume so. Craig's had a really nice year. They de- they definitely have outfield depth. Uh, so, you know, Holiday is a little dinged up. Um, and, you know, Berkman's over in right field. So, um, uh, you know, they've, they've got depth so they can move guys around. Obviously, they have John Jay as well. I think you'll see all four of those guys get pretty prominent playing time in the series. Okay. And then the, the one series we have not yet mentioned is the uh, the Yankees and uh, their uh, the uh, AL Central winners, uh, the Detroit Tigers. Verlander, Sabathia won't be a bad game. Uh, yeah, probably too bad. Not too bad game. I, I would think that the Tigers have enough umph to maybe push this series the whole distance. So we we might get uh, Verlander and Sabathia twice. Mm. Now, in, in addition to that, because after Sabathia, what's go what's going to happen with the Yankees? Yeah, they're starting Ivan Nova in game two, which right. um, you a player know they sent down, a player they sent down to the minors in the middle of the season. Yeah, and yeah. Ivan Nova, uh, if you like wins and losses, had a really good season. But if you like, you know, the metrics you'll find on Fangraphs, Ivan Nova is not very good. And uh, so, you know, I, I've been one of these who's been pushing the Yankees pitching staff is better than you think, and you know their bullpen's really good, and you know Colon and Garcia are actually not that bad, and Burnett's better than people think. Uh, but if Ivan Nova is going to start game two. I don't know. I think the Tigers might give the, the Yankees a run. I think Nova's probably the fifth or sixth best pitcher on that staff. And um, uh, to me, I understand that he had a statistically better season uh, than a few guys, but if you're going to go by ERA and if you think that you know results are all that matters and we have to reward the guy who's pitched well down the stretch. But I think Ivan Nova could get destroyed by a pretty decent Tigers offense. And you know if they beat Nova in game two and Verlander wins twice, all of a sudden the Tigers won the series. Yeah, well, in addition to that, uh, Doug Fisters had kind of a crazy good year, yep. and then you have Max Scherzer, yep. who or Scherzer, Max Scherzer, Scherzer, yeah. Okay, Max Scherzer. Uh, sorry, I do the uh, correct German pronunciation. The uh, uh, who has who has you know in, in terms of stuff has some of the best stuff in the majors. When well, yeah, that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but uh, you know Scherzer's got a good arm, and you know if he throws strikes for four or five innings and turns the ball over to the bullpen. He could keep that game close, but I mean, I definitely think you know, like if you look at Verlander versus Sabathia, it's probably a push. Uh, the Yankees have a better offense, so maybe they're slight favorites in that game. But I mean, no one's gonna be an overwhelming favorite against Verlander. Uh, Fister versus Nova is a huge push to the Yankees in terms of, or to the Tigers in terms of pitching. Um, maybe you call it even again because of the offensive differential. But um, you know, and then Scherzer and you know Freddie Garcia in Game Three. I mean, that's a bullpen game. I don't think either of those guys are gonna go more than four innings, maybe five. If, you know, they're really pitching well. Um, so, you know, I think that the Yankees are in some trouble here. I, I, my guess would be that they win the series, but I do think they're a better team. But uh, I would imagine that one goes to full, the full five, and the Tigers definitely have a chance to knock them off. So you're going still with uh, Red Sox-Braves in the World Series? 
you know, I got to stick to my guns, right? Isn't that the Ken Davidoff thing? Is you just, uh, you know, you tweet your prediction every day until you admit you're wrong. Uh, yeah, Red Sox Braves in the World Series is obviously not going to happen, but, uh, you know, they both had good, good enough seasons where it wasn't the worst call I've ever made. I mean, I didn't say they were the six best organizations in baseball. No, you did not. That was, uh, that's a huge mistake you made in your career as a writer. <laughs> I'm lucky no one really cares about what I think because, uh, uh, if I had said if they believed some of the things I said, I would uh, have been fired some time ago. <laughs> well, we're still considering that. No, no, I get it. Uh, but now, a couple. Uh, one thing I just want to ask about quickly, uh, and then uh, we'll let you go back to your busy life, uh, Dave Cameron. There are a couple young pitchers who might uh, make an impact. Um, maybe young players in general. One of them certainly could, or uh, is Matt Moore, who I think will probably make the postseason roster by a sort of procedural um, procedure. Let's say just use the same word, adjectival and noun forms of, uh, because I think probably the uh, the Rays will be putting someone on the 60-day disa- disabled list to make room for more. Is he going to have what? Is he going to have sort of like one of these, uh, you know, David Price type roles from a couple years ago? No, from what I've heard, they're going to use him as Jeff Neiman's emergency replacement. So I think that the Rays are understand that Jeff Neiman is Jeff Neiman, and he's probably not going to last very long in Game 1. So my guess is Matt Moore is going to be warming up pretty quickly, uh, and he's going to almost uh, caddy Neiman, and so they'll let Neiman go as long as he can until they go, holy crap, we have Jeff Neiman on the mound in a playoff game, let's do something about this. And then they'll go get a better pitcher in Matt Moore and put him on the mound. So I think you'll see a lot of Matt Moore in game one. So is this essentially, uh, they're, they're taking, they're doing like the uh, Midwest League low A type of thing, right. where they have two yeah. starters for one game? Yeah, well, and I think, you know, that there's maybe something to be said of, you know, Moore has very minimal major league experience, and asking him to start game one of a playoff series as a rookie is, is a lot to handle. So they're almost treating it like, uh, you know what, we just won't put that pressure on him. We'll let Neiman get like five or six outs, and then we'll bring in Matt Moore for a pseudo start. And I don't think that's maybe the worst plan ever. Well, in fact, uh, I mean, psychologically, and if we may do this from our armchairs, um, if you look at it, it's actually smart, because at that point, it's like it's the, the expectations are considerably lower, right? Because he's just trying to save the game for the race at that point instead of uh, destroy it from the beginning. Yeah, and, you know, I think it gives him less time to sit around thinking about, oh, man, I'm pitching in three hours, I'm pitching in two hours. I mean, there's definitely mental aspects that I think you could say we're protecting the kid a little bit, and there's a strategic aspect. I mean, Neiman's a right-hander and Moore's a lefty, so if the Rays start Neiman and the uh, the Yankees run out their anti-right-hander lineup and then an inning later, here comes Matt Moore, they have the wrong platoon guys in there. And so, you know, uh, I think it's the Rays are looking at it ahead of time and saying we're planning on getting more innings from Matt Moore in game one than Jeff Neiman, uh, starting Neiman instead of starting Moore might not actually be a bad idea. So, all right, so another question, maybe less likely. Do we know if Jared Parker is going to be making uh, – and he made uh, he made his first um, appearance in the majors just uh, yesterday, I believe. Yep. Uh, so, is, is he going to be part of the postseason roster? I don't believe so. Everything I've read is they called Parker up just to kind of get his feet wet and give him a major league experience. But uh, unless something changes between now and Saturday and they have a change of heart, I don't believe Jared Parker is going to be on the Diamondbacks postseason roster. Uh, they're going to go with the veteran guys or the, you know, slightly more veteran guys in Josh Colomenter's case, um, which I think is a little bit of a mistake. I think, you know, Parker's got one of the better arms on that team. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, having a guy who can bring heat out of the bullpen at the very least, not the worst idea in the world, but uh, I think they believe that Parker could probably um, use a little bit more seasoning before they throw him into a playoff series. Okay. All right, Dave Cameron, uh, uh, do you have anything else to add? Do you have, do you have a, do you need anything you need to learn from me? 
Uh, well, there are a lot of things I need to learn from you, but uh, until I buy my first pair of skinny jeans, I'll hold off on asking those Ooh, questions. That one again. I guess it never gets old for you. It really never does. Yeah, that's great. That's really Apparently, nice. neither do your skinny jeans, because I see them a lot. Blah! I actually am wearing uh, uh, very sensible slacks right now. I don't know if they're why, why would you wear slacks at home? <laughs> uh, is, that, is that not correct, blogger? Uh, I mean, you know, like I've I've lived <laughs> with people who wear slacks at home, but they're more like you know MBA corporate people. If you're going to be a hipster blogger, I don't, I don't even know why you would own you're slacks. You're killing me. This is done. We're gonna I'm gonna fly out there and we're gonna have some fisticuffs. Ah, uh, yeah, beating up a leukemia patient always good for your. Okay, opinion. now you bring that up. Right. Okay. Good. Right. All right. All right. Maybe feel sufficiently terrible. <laughs> that means it's time for the podcast end. But Dave, uh, thanks for joining us. And we'll, I'm sure we'll touch base uh, sooner than later. Uh, I look forward to it. All right, all right. Take care. That's uh, Dave Cameron, our full-time employee. I am. We'll continue to be Carson Sestouli, and this has been another edition of Fangraphs Audio.